Welcome to the Alienators Chess Game Podcast, exposing the playbook to the toxic co-parent. I'm your host and high-conflict family coach, Jennifer Segge. Now let's strategize. Let's dissect the personality of the alienator. Let's identify the needs of our children the abuser preys on. Let's extinguish the chaos of the co-parent conflict. Target parent warriors, let's outsmart the manipulator and rescue the parent-child bond. Checkmate. Hello, Target Warrior Parents, Support Tribe, and Allies. Welcome to another episode of the Alienators Chess Game. I am here today with a very special guest, Emily Cochran. She specializes in high-conflict custody cases, as well as the cases that have any kind of anomalies, such as any kind of emotional, psychological, physical abuse, or neglect cases and children who have special needs. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Now, Emily sent me this case from the Kentucky Supreme Court all the way back in August, and I was very intrigued by um, all of the dynamics and the outcome of this case. And it was at um, Kentucky Cabinet of Health and Family Services versus LG and HM. And I want to Let's go ahead and ask Emily to give us a little bit of a background of the case. Okay, so this this case has a very um, lengthy background, um, unfortunately, but this case started, um, the child now is actually, he'll be 16 um, this coming uh, February, but it started when the um, parents got a divorce when the child was two. They agreed to joint um, legal custody and equal parenting, um, and around the age of the child when he was five there was a dispute about parenting time where there was uh, the mom said you they needed to have uh didn't want dad to have the child over derby weekend you know it's kentucky so that's a pretty um sacred holiday weekend so um she was very upset about that and then immediately afterwards filed a report um with the cabinet for um allegations of abuse then um subsequent to that um there, they were those were not um, founded, and then the dad um, eventually filed a motion for more parenting time, and then another report from mom of abuse occurred. This continued um, for um, where the cabinet got involved and investigated it, and it was found um, not to be substantiated. But because, in like these cases, there was a gap of time, then the court ordered reunification with the father and the son, and returned legal custody to, um, you know, shared legal custody between the parents. Then there was another re- uh, report um, around the child um, when, when he was ten, and this is the the, the report that initiated this um, Supreme Court case where the child was wanting to play football and there was conflict. Um, the dad said that he did not think that the child should be playing football. And then mom issued another report of sexual abuse allegations about the, um, from the dad. And so the invest the cabinet investigated that they actually interviewed the child and, and the child had, was saying that the dad um, sexually abused him and filed a petition. And then um, six months later, through that investigation, they filed a petition against the mother for emotional abuse um, and concerns of coaching um, the child to make the allegations. So um, there was a, a lengthy uh, three-day trial in this case, and there was experts that were appointed from the court, um, and including it's Dr. Um, 
Bray, I think Bria, I think is her name, and she um, testified that she had concerns that the mother was um, manipulating the child and keeping the child from um, the father and also in part of the the reunification efforts, the court had appointed a therapist for the child. And then for three years, the child did not um, report any abuse to the to his own therapist. Um, but around the time of the 2017 report of sexual abuse, um, the child started saying he didn't like his therapist and he hated her and didn't want her involved. So um, that was also concerning to the cabinet worker um, in this case, and also the, the court's expert um, that relied upon their ultimate decision that the mother was interfering with the child's therapeutic relationships and um, and interfering with the child's um, uh, relationship with his dad, his dad, obviously, and they um, gave custody to dad and um, only gave mom one hour a week of supervised visits. Then mom appealed um, and at the court of appeal, um, this, so this was a cabinet case. This was a, a dependency, neglect, and abuse case, not a, this was not um, part of their divorce case, what we call in Kentucky a CI case. Um, so they applied the statute, so dependency, neglect, and abuse um, to the standard for emotional harm. And that's what the trial court relied upon. And the Court of Appeals um, issued um, a reversal of the trial court opinion saying that the, the psychologist um, did, even though she was very credible and she testified to, you know, all of the, the tactics that she observed um, of mother interfering with the child's um, therapy, as well as um, relationships with his dad, um, that because Dr. Berlay focused on mother's actions and, and a potential personality disorder that that did not rise to the level of emotional harm because there was not an overt um, uh, examples to give of like the child's grades falling or you know he was his grades were fine he seemed well adjusted um, on the surface and so the court of appeals reversed it um, where the the Supreme Court took it under under review and um, agreed with the trial court that and it was you know very very helpful I think in this case and what's so important that we see in a lot of trial case trial court levels and what my experience is that you know the the courts are not seeing that you know the the big you know kind of like a, a outside looking in big picture of the emotional abuse that happens in these high conflict situations where we have a child that is making false um reports the 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 investigation and the petition from the trial court found that the the um allegations um of sexual abuse were were not founded they interviewed the child in chambers and he was not giving any specifics of the abuse um he would just say that it happened, you know, for years, it's happened for years, and, and every incidence was the same, which was very different than the reports that mom um, had told the cabinet of, like, you know, masks on the dad and, and somebody taking pictures with a the camera. Um, there was also um, uh, concerns of the child's therapist that... Um, also became alienated as part of this process from the child um, where the child would make comments that, you know, if I would get in trouble, if I didn't talk about the abuse, 
Um, also, um, the child uh, um, started, uh, you know, was it, it became clear in the in the trial about the evaluation from Dr. Berea that the child um, would get rewarded if he would if he would you know say talk about the the abuse like he would get a limousine ride and and games and um you know parties an ex. yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, like a new puppy was one of them exactly yeah. exactly so um the trial court um said that the court of appeal i mean i'm sorry the supreme court said the court of appeals got it wrong the trial court was correct and that under the statute that um all of the things that dr bria testified to um, were systematic endeavors, endeavors that um, that use the child as a pawn to remove the um, his relationships that were, you know, with his father and also with his therapist that would became emotionally harmful to him, and that then the child started using the same type of tactics that mom did of being, you know, manipulative and and using, you know, different people as pawns to you know, achieve his objective, that which is really aligned to, to mom. And that that, um, the, the court expert, um, appointed ex evaluator, uh, testified that, she, that he would take years to, um, for the, all of that to be undone and that the, they were, were not going to disrupt the trial court's, um, ruling. And that's what was issued. Yeah, I find this is one of the most, you know, difficult cases that we're presented with is, you know, one side is saying that there is some kind of abuse, whether it's, you know, sexual abuse or physical abuse. And then the other side is saying, no, that's not really occurring. Really what's going on is emotional abuse. And that's a really difficult situation for judges, magistrates, caseworkers, social workers to be involved in is to really figuring, obviously, in some way, this child is being abused, no matter which way that you look at it. You know, um, whether it's, yes, these are false allegations, then the child is being psychologically, emotionally abused. Or if the allegations are correct, then the child is being sexually abused or physically abused. Mm -hmm. And so it is really complicated. And when, you know, professionals are just getting involved in the case, and I know a lot of listeners, you know, you guys have been dealing with this for years, but when professionals get involved, it takes time to figure out because in no way do we ever want to overlook if there's a child that is really being sexually abused or um, physically abused, but we also can't overlook if a child is being emotionally abused because we do now have the research how much long-term damage that causes. And I'm glad you pointed out in this case that you know he was doing really well in school. I was reading uh, you know the Kentucky law and what constitutes as an emotional injury, and it did talk about well you know how is the functioning in different areas. Well, these children who are being emotionally abused do function really well in school most of the time, um, do function well in other areas because those are areas of their life that they can control. And so they do put a lot of energy. They feel like they can, you know, focus this and, and, and even in school is a very healthy place because they're not getting that emotional abuse. So they do usually emotional abuse or or if there is physical or psychological well, uh, abuse occurring. Um, that is a, a safe place for them. So they so they are doing really well, but that we cannot just automatically say, well, they're functioning, so therefore 
this isn't affecting. No, we still have to dig deeper. There's, you know, the long-term effects that this does cause. Obviously, you mentioned that the the boy learned these manipulative behaviors from mom and continue is now picking up and using the manipulative behaviors on his own. And so how unhealthy that is going to be for him and his future relationships as well. And then, you know, you also mentioning um, when you were talking about, you know, mom making him report that there has been sexual abuse and, um, you know, looking at the works of uh, Dr. Stephen Cece and Dr. Loftus and how easily memories can be created in children. And so <laughs> making them believe that they were actually sexually abused when they haven't been sexually abused can still cause those same effects. Um, and so I, I know that you had noted that um, Dr. Berla had um, identified that maybe there's a personality disorder with mom or also, um, you know, some other issues that are going on. But one thing that, you know, causes some red flags there is when a parent causes a child to believe that they have some kind of disorder or some kind of abuse um, that has happened to them you know, that is factitious disorder imposed by another, um, or it used to be called Munchausen's by proxy. Mm -hmm. And so we have all these different layers of all these mental health issues that are going on with, you know, someone who is interfering in the relationship or the alienator and how that is affecting uh, the child long-term and ultimately, you know, the relationship between the child and the other parent. Yeah, well, and in this case, it was, you know, these cases are really, really difficult because, you know, um, it's why I think that, you know, it was so important to have the psychologist um, do this evaluation and come testify about it. But because there's, you know, in cases where there's children that have been sexually abused, they may be presenting well in school mm -hmm. and they may, you know, that th there's no clear cut, you know, answer, like not every, I think that's where, I, I get some, somewhat frustrated as a child advocate that when I hear people say children, you know, are resilient. Like, so it's like, yes, well, humans, we are resilient. And that, and that, that is a true statement, but you don't know what the impact is of emotional abuse or sexual abuse because, you know, yes, we can give, you know, children and, and people the tools and therapy to get through that, but that doesn't, I think sometimes that's used in a way, said in a way that just like, credits the protectiveness that is that we as um you know advocates for children in the court system are supposed to be doing for them but it's so reactive i mean this case you know, now this kid is 16 years old this started when he was five i mean what um you know the impact of, the, of that is just you know profound and um and so when we you know i think that what was really important with her testimony was that um there was there's a lot of situations in this case where we've seen a lot a lot when there is um you know alienation or interference from another parent where the reports are um changed you know and have this this flat effect you don't you know they're not responding you know or, or explain or giving details however though it's the children you know research shows as well that children you know that have had trauma um from sexual abuse you know are not gonna you know recount you know, dates and times i mean that's their little you know developing brains are trying to make sense of something horrible that happened to them and so what's you know in this case though is that um uh there was times where the the child you know was wanting to go see that and then you know no no, no i don't um you know 
then he would say, no, dad's abuse, abuse me. And I hate my dad or, you know, and, and so it's, I guess the, the thing with these cases is it's, it's really, really complicated. And, um, it, it's it's sad because through that through this you know we we have a child that um you know that what what life he would have had uh, if we had there was intervention sooner, um, but it is it's the fact within this case that the psychologist um you know did really um, do a very thorough job and her testimony really is what um what made made the major difference and so that's you know is really mm -hmm. um important and, and I, it was it was great to see the trial court really got it right I mean all that the Supreme Court did was say good job you did this correctly because you know we can't I guess I guess what was frustrating when I read the Court of Appeals opinion is that the child wasn't injured enough yeah. you know and like what message is that yeah. and I feel like that I as, as a you know a, a, a family lawyer that I've seen that so many times in my career and it's like well but is how is that in the best interest and i know this was a dna case but those you know this there's was this was initially um a circuit court um divorce custody matter and even then the judge in that case in 2014 you know gave an opinion from the you know the bench saying that he had a lot of concerns of mom's um you know emotional instability of, of how she was not handling well separation from the child and it was about mom and and then now we are you know um, four years later and this you know this kid is um is harmed has been significantly harmed and and what's sad about it too is that there is you know and it's still like just thinking about the kid that he even had in the opinion because this is what children do they want to please their parents and so even an abusive parent. And so the child, you know, was was wanting the, to get that affirmation, that closest and that connection and that connection and that bond with his mom mm -hmm. in the way that the mom was fostering that bond. Yeah. And it's sad. Put, it is. And just put yourself in, you know, as a five-year-old and wanting that connection with mom and being told things, you know, you really look up to your parents on how to guide you, what is right and wrong and having your mom misguide you. And I know, um, you know, with his therapist, um, and it took three years for him to come out to his therapist and start asking questions of, wait a minute, what, what do you do if somebody tells you, you know, to lie or, you know, is, is that okay? And, it, you know, just to think that it took that much rapport development with the, the therapist um, to even start questioning his mom um, in, in those kind of behaviors. And in all those, in those three years, he never mentioned anything about sexual abuse. Now, I'm not discrediting, you know, because some children may go, you know, mm -hmm. 20 years before they, you know, feel comfortable talking about abuse. I don't think that that, this, there, with these cases, there is rarely one you know, aspect, it's building a puzzle mm -hmm. and all the picture pieces. And that's what's so sad about it really is because you, you have to have all these different pieces of, of evidence or, or behaviors from a child or whatever, because, you know, just one, one thing that we're, you can't just take one isolated thing that we're talking about and that be dispositive of what, you know, happened here. And, and, you know, that's what's di it's difficult because it takes time. But what was really important in this case, and what I think is important in cases where, you know, 
don't, don't always have this outcome is that they're, you know, you have to have the right players up, up front and you, they need to come in and really, re, you know, educate the trial court because they're human too, mm-hmm. you know, and we all have our own, you know, personal biases, you know, it doesn't make them a, bi- a biased judge, but of how we think things should go. And so if you have an, um, an expert that come in and testify and has done some really good work, um, as, as, you know, interviewed everybody and read everything and, and, and knows their stuff before they even looked at the file and then you give them the file and they really dug through everything, then that really goes a long way. And that's really what happened in, in this case. Um, so it was, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I like how you use that analogy of it's, you know, it's kind of like a puzzle. You just have to, you're putting the pieces together. And there are some really key pieces here that, you know, the attorneys at the trial level did a really good job, you know, definitely using the psychologist um, as an expert witness to come in and testify on, you know, what their long-term facts and knowing that, yes, here's, you know, ABC on how this um, relationship was interfered with by the mother between the the father and the son. And, you know, noting that his, um, the the son's testimony or testify or uh, the allegation that he had made was, you know, very rote, as you mentioned, you know, good lack of emotional affect when talking about it um, was another significant piece. Uh, the other pieces that were pretty significant is, you know, anytime that there was an allegation, it was preceded by a conflict mm-hmm. in the relationship and the co-parenting relationship. And so there are some, you know, in this case, it really seems like the attorneys focused on the main issues, some specific issues, and were able to back it up substantially. Mm-hmm. And so that the judge could get to the decision and understand that, yes, there is emotional abuse that is going on here. I think a lot of times when you're in it as the target parent or there's that high conflict co-parenting, there's so many things that are happening and, you know, uh, people want the court to know all these different aspects and you really just have to focus in on what are the main things that are occurring here and really focus on proving how the co-parent is interfering in the relationship between the parent and the child. Well, and and to add on that, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I've never read a case so much that um, screamed parental alienation without saying the word parental alienation. I think there's a, I'm not on TikTok, but I think there's this thing that's going on now that says, say you're from, I'm from from West Virginia, say you're from West Virginia without being West Virginia. This would be this case, say it's parental alienation without saying parental alienation. Um, But I think that, you know, we see, we, I, in my, my career, in my, with my clients, I say, don't say that word. It's over, sometimes it's, you know, in the courtroom because, um, or, you know, narcissism or things like that, even though we know that's what's happening, because I don't think you know, the, the, those words weren't even included here. The focus here is, and the focus, I think, of your proof in your, in your efforts um, as a parent or as an attorney or as a therapist is what is the impact? What is the emotional harm to this child? Because that's really what gets everybody's attention. It's like, what's the impact? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, the Court of Appeals thought it needed to be, you know, you know, flailing and wailing and failing grades and, you know, suicide attempts but if you focus in like what you know kind of strategically of how does this impact um that this child's functioning um you know in a 
um, bigger picture level. I mean, you know, I think that uh, it's a little bit more, I mean, I think that, you know, the courts are understanding now that it's, it's, it's in the child's best interest to have a relationship with both parents, you know, unless they're, you know, really unfit, you know, but the, the standard is, is quite, is quite broad. But, um, but on the flip side, though, because it's so broad that sometimes we overlook that what, what, how much are we having to put kids through before we say enough's enough, mm-hmm. you know? And even though this case came out on the positive side, 10 years, yeah. it took 10 years yeah, I don't to think... go through the process from the first um, false allegation that was made. Yeah. And, you know, and what's sad too, I mean, you know, I, th- I don't think, I think it goes without saying is that, you know, children are, are um, even children that are abused. I mean, this is, you know, emotional abuse, which I think that sometimes we say that in a way that's discrediting, which I think is, you know, I think the emotional abuse we see, and you can probably, you know, you can speak to this, is the emotional abuse is what takes so much more time to cover. I would rather you punch me in the face than, you know, you know, emotionally, you know, mess with my brain, you know, so, but, um, I think in the legal field, we, we use that word as a, oh, it's just emotional abuse. It's like, well, yeah, that, that this, the cycle of that will, will trickle down, you know, as right. you've educated me on of, um, uh, you know, children that are, that are alienated from a parent are likely to be alienated, um, as adults, 50%, right? Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is very sad. So what's, what's also sad here too, is that this child, um, you know, we're not, we're not talking about the impact of him being removed from the mom because he's bonded to his abusive parent. He, it, the Supreme court of Kentucky says this child's been, you know, emotionally, you know, abused. Um, and, and now he's away from that. And that, that, that's good. That's a good thing because she, she needs help. But, um, you know, the trial court identified in 2014 that mom had some issues. You know, what if the efforts were, we need to get mom some help so that now we don't have a 15 year old that now has been, you know, he's, his thought process is so maladaptive mm-hmm. of that, what he needs to do to manipulate, to feel loved by a parent. Like, wow. I mean, that's, that's going to take a lot to undo if it does at all. Yeah. No, you make a really good point. And wondering, like, we definitely need to be more proactive. Do you have any ideas of what could possibly be done so that we are more proactive on these cases? Well, I think, um, you know, that's, you know, you, you and I were talking about this before we started that I've not, you know, I, I think that we all should be um, kind of maybe have like a checklist of things. I'm trying to still trying to work through that myself because there's, you know, there are cases where, you know, at the beginning of a divorce, beginning of custody, it's normal because we're all human. It's a, there's a certain level of this fight or flight, like, or fear, you know, I, you know, I'm a divorced parent, you know, the, to, you know, I, I'm a working parent. Sometimes it's normal to feel like, oh, I miss, you know, miss my kid, you know, right now. But, and, and, and the, there's kind of like this emotional kind of uh, cycle of, of, you know, conflict that's almost normal at the beginning of a lot of cases. And then at most of them, they fizzle out. Yeah. And usually after about two, two years is the average a year to two. You know, you know, Jennifer, I'm kind of hard on my, I'm a little strict on my clients. So I, I would find that to be unacceptable. But, uh, but, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, uh, I like to get it, get it real done pretty quickly, but, 
But, uh, you know, trying to, um, as, as attorneys, um, as professionals, kind of seeing the bigger red flags, you know, um, and, but in terms of when you are presented with a case that, you know, you have to present is that, like, I think I'd said this before, um, getting your team of professionals will come in, like, mm -hmm. you know, getting your, you know, second cousin or a neighbor to come in to testify, you know, unfortunately that, that you can't cut corners in that. Like you've got to have come somebody come in that knows their stuff. There's an expert in the field knows what to, to point out. There's, you know, so many cases that where um, therapists with the best intentions are just not um, um, equipped with seeing some of the red flags mm -hmm. of interference from a parent and they're coming in to testify. So you think you got to do your homework um, and get the right players in to come in um, and and go quickly, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the because really what happened with this case is that the 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 mom she was every time there was a conflict between the parents, like we said, then there was a report. Mm -hmm. Well, that started in 2012. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you know, I guess it, it's one of the unfortunate reality in these cases. A lot of times, it's hindsight 2020. But after so many of them, and as, as so much we're learning, and you educate us um, attorneys as this as well, like what what are what role, what hand in this process if I am I failing a child? Because even though I don't represent children anymore, but typically, I mean, I, I I'm happy to, but I don't mostly I represent adults, is that I'm not going to be a vehicle for, for a parent to, to harm their child. And, and even if my client, you know, is struggling, you know, cause it, cause really it, it kind of just grows, you just gasoline gets bigger and bigger and we're not, you know, inner, inner, um, uh, interjecting and getting this mom help mm -hmm. of therapy to work through whatever issues she has. So she's not screwing up her kid. Um, Sometimes attorneys need to recognize that and not just be a vehicle for the um, perpetual harm of a child. Yeah. So one thing about this case, if you haven't caught on yet, this was not this was not an domestic relations case. Right. It was already settled. This was um, we call the CPS in Ohio. In some places, they call DCFS or something like that. DCFS. Come come in and say wait a minute, we think that there is abuse going on here and it is emotional abuse and it is by the mother, which is really refreshing to hear because I have made several um, reports of psychological abuse where one parent is interfering with the other and trying to manipulate mm -hmm. the child against the other parent and nothing is done with that at all. Like there's no investigation at all. Mm -hmm. So it is refreshing to hear that there is a state that, hey, when there is enough or, you know, Hopefully there, we do come up with that checklist so that we can make it sooner, but there is a state, a cabinet that is doing something and stepping in and saying, yes, this is abusive, um, yeah. emotional abuse, and they're not undermining that this this has damaging effects on the kids. You know, a recent report that I made to our um, CPS of the the CPS worker acknowledged that, yeah, oh yeah, that does sound like psychological abuse, but there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and, the, and we're, you know, we can't, um, you know, change the whole system, you know, overnight. I mean, the, this case was a, um, a dependency, neglect and abuse case, but, you know, 
the social workers, they're very, very, you know, overworked. Um, it's, um, it's very, these cases are very complicated. Um, it's a lot of people miss it. And, um, and when you're overloaded with the case caseload, you know, you can't, um, not really, not one person can be, have to point the finger on. I mean, we, we have to put the finger on ourselves as well. And so if, a, if you have a case where the social worker, um, you, you just know, or, have a lot of concerns that there's some sort of abuse going on and you make the report and nothing happens, then, you know, I'm of the opinion then, then, you know, it's like where I have my clients will come in and say, well, you know, you know, she didn't take him to the, to the dentist. And it's like, uh, well, I guess then you should, you know, like, you know, it's like, we can't say like, well, she was supposed to take him to the dentist. Now he's got his teeth are rotten out. I'm like, yeah, that's your, falls back on you. And so you have to, a lot of times with these cases, you have to go back to the drawing board a few times. And, um, and if you, you know, sometimes you get assigned a, a rock star, um, social worker and sometimes you don't. And, you know, there's rock star attorneys and rock star therapists. And there's, you know, some that, you know, have the learning curve, you know? Um, and so that's, in this case, there was, it was actually a, a two different social workers that, um, the first one is the one first social worker in 2017. These are two concurrent cases that went up. Um, the one, uh, uh, at the trial level, the so first social worker, um, uh, filed a petition for sexual abuse against dad. And then six months later, a new social worker came, you know, um, on, on the case and looked at it and was pretty sharp and said, no, this is emotional abuse of the kid by mom and filed a petition against her. And so the, the takeaway though, is just, it's that these aren't easy, easy cases to do, but what's in, critical for the outcome is to have, um, you know, a, you know, in this case, the, the court, the cabinet CPS requested the evaluator, the psychologist, the psychologist to do the evaluation. Um, that and my my experience is a bit rare. Not not that's a lot of that's costs money for the state, um, and sometimes you just didn't, then if this doesn't go well, um, you know, protecting your child in the C, through the CPS um, system, then you go file something else. Uh, you know, petition for the court, and you get your experts. You know, the other way because um, this is what this is this is what made this case. Uh, you know, fall the way that it did. Yeah. So. so if we were to focus on three things, you know, when you feel like your the other parent is interfering in the relationship between you and your child, you know, getting those expert witnesses in mm -hmm. there, what else would you recommend? Um, I think getting therapy um, involved um, in me, I always say this to clients, I know, you know, it's an expense. It's, you know, attorneys are expensive, therapists are expensive, but I mean, I, I like to pretend like I'm a therapist, but I have no credentials. And so I give advice all day long without any uh, um, uh, education on uh, being a counselor. But, you know, worst case, best case scenario, you get a therapist involved, and, you know, to to help the family and help the child and things go and it helps and, it, and things go on great. If not, now you've started your evidence because yeah, there's that. Right. Yeah. And so you pick those people 
carefully. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes you got to be careful with Google. You know, like you know, yeah, you definitely get, want to make sure that uh, the therapist has some training and you know high in, conflict families, high conflict families, even resist refusal cases. If you're mm-hmm. considering or if you're feeling like there's some interference, uh, because that is particular training that they do not offer in graduate school. Correct, and uh, and this is um, and everybody has different opinions, but since you asked me to be on your podcast and give you mine. But I think that, you know, getting help to a family uh, on the onset is very important. But um, I do, I'm such a uh, an advocate of people having their their special trusted person to talk to. You know, that I think privilege um, for, um, you know, there's attorney-client privilege, but there's privilege and confidential communications between, a, you know, a client and a, and a psychotherapist. And I think that that um, um, especially applies to a child. And I think it even more so it applies to a child when they are being manipulated by uh, parents or, you know, abuse. So they, they don't know who to trust because we aren't we designed to trust both of our parents and in the children in these contexts, they're pretty confused what that is. Um, so when you, to get with their child, their own therapist, I think that's important. So they don't, that, that, that therapist understands these dynamics as well that can, you know, help the child um, therapeutically. But I also think that it's important to have a, a, a therapist or a coach for the family mm-hmm. because th- that those people can then testify because I don't, I'm, a lot of attorneys don't do this, but I, I mean, have a different opinion, but I don't like to bring the people's personal therapist into the courtroom, but those people play a very important role for the child to get through things, you know, but, um, but not without having to like pierce that, that, uh, that trusted, um, you know, communication. So there's a whole other, a lot of advice I give parents, like, you know, to, I don't like when parents go, go, uh, talk to therapists after a the child session because kids will think oh gosh are they do the therapist tell them everything my mom or my, to my dad but but have so having you know look, look at people's credentials you know ask around i think that's really really important um, and then having a a therapist or a coach or, or an intervener of some sort to a high conflict situation off the bat um and it may just be you know a couple months and things are on their way mm-hmm. if not we can identify quickly, and while we have somebody that is is you know kind of thrusted into the court dynamic, they can come in and testify and give educate the court of what's going on, and it can it won't take eleven years like it did in this case for this kid to have relief. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Emily. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily is a licensed family law attorney in the state of Kentucky as well as Ohio. So if anybody wanted to get in contact with you and ask you any questions, because she's amazing. I did want to say uh, when I introduced you is I talked to a lot of attorneys and a lot of attorneys say, you must hate me by now. I send you the worst cases or the toughest cases. And I will say Emily Cochran has won that. She oh. really does have the toughest cases. Yeah. So she is very knowledgeable about the, the law and you know different angles and and really overall the one the reason why I respect her the most is she really does care about the child mm. the most and she will if you are her client and you are doing something that is affecting your child she will let you know and I really really appreciate that about her but she's a genius Emily just started with a new firm 
Rickers, Rickers, and Nakajima. And if you would like to get in contact with her, you can contact her through email at emily at rickgers, R-I-T-T-G-E-R-S dot com. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for listening today, everyone. Now, go outsmart the manipulator and rescue the parent-child bond. And the child.